uh, in Isaiah, these first six chapters, first five chapters actually, are kind of an overview. They're a uh, prologue to the book. Uh, They incorporate um, the concepts of the vision and prophecy of Isaiah that we find elaborated on as we begin to move through a rather long prophecy, 66 chapters in all. When we come to Isaiah chapter 6, we actually kind of dial the clock back to the beginning of Isaiah's call. He talks about being in the temple on the Lord's day in the year that King Uzziah died. And that is the beginning of Isaiah's call uh, to be a prophet. And it is from that point forward that he begins to give a sequence of detailed prophecies of things that are going to come. But these first five chapters give us kind of a, a, a forecasting, an overview, if you please, And in the process of it, they touch on some themes that um, we need to be mindful of. Uh, One of those uh, themes, and we looked at that in chapter 1 and and chapter 2, the first five verses of chapter 2 a couple of weeks ago, is that God has made a promise. It is a promise to Israel but it is also a promise that incorporates the church. We are grafted into the true vine. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, we have come to be a part of that uh, root of Jesse, and we are brought into the family of God that begins with Abraham, the father of the faithful. And so the promises that God makes to Israel also uh, incorporate the church. Daniel and Zechariah perhaps uh, make that most clear, but we also see it in the last portion of Isaiah as uh, he begins to focus on the coming Messiah. And so... Whenever we see these promises that God has made to Israel, we are also reminded of our future. And in these first five chapters, the warnings and the judgments to come and God's pronouncement of wrath and judgment upon the nation because of its apostasy is interspersed with glimpses of His coming glory. That He has planned for us a future, and He has promised to Israel a future that will include His very presence, and His reigning, and His Shekinah glory and presence from Jerusalem. A lot of people uh, even among evangelicals, and I have very good friends who are uh, solid um, biblical scholars committed to the scriptures 
and uh, faithful preachers that believe that the church has replaced Israel and that Israel no longer has a future uh, as the people of God, that it has become only the church that really counts for the future. But I find that very difficult to, uh, to believe because God has made promises to Israel that have never been fulfilled. And they have to do with the people and with the land. And they have to do with the very last days when the whole world is focused against Israel for her destruction and God's miraculous deliverance. And so as I study the, the future and what we call eschatology, the doctrine of the last things, and look at those last years and days, I am confident that Israel has a future, that God has a plan for her, that she is still his people, his chosen people. And that beginning with Abraham and coming down through the years, God has always preserved a remnant. And there will come a time in the future when he restores Israel to her original glory. In fact, it will be a time that exceeds any glory she's ever experienced. Solomon's amazing reign, uh, probably the wealthiest time of Israel. Uh, our Lord Jesus will be a great king and a great warrior, more than David. And he will come on behalf of Israel and establish her future. And so uh, these things are hinted at in these opening chapters. But along with them, it's as though Isaiah keeps coming back to the present and reminding Judah and Jerusalem of the straits that she is in because of her rebellion against the Lord and because of the way that she has gone her own direction. So if you look at Isaiah chapter 2 and you look at um, verses uh, 6 and following, I just want to uh, highlight those for you for a moment. Isaiah 2, verse 6, You have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob. This is speaking of God. Has abandoned the house of Jacob because they are filled with influences from the east. They are soothsayers like the Philistines. And they strike bargains with the children of foreigners. In other words, Israel, or I'm going to get that interspersed, I'm sure, throughout this study, but we're really only speaking of Judah, the southern kingdom. Judah has wanted to work into the commerce and the politics of the nations. She wants to be like them. She wants to be recognized by them. She, she wants to have uh, some uh, power and some clout. And so uh, he says, they have been filled with the influences of the East 
and they strike bargains with the children of foreigners. Their land has been filled with silver and gold, and there's no end to their treasures. Their land has also been filled with horses, and there's no end to their chariots. Their land has been filled with idols. They worship the work of their hands, which their fingers has have made. In other words, Judah has built itself up. It wants to be a rich and wealthy and powerful nation. It wants to, to be recognized for its predominance. There is always a correlation in the scriptures to the present times. You can take the word of Isaiah to Judah and you can apply it to other periods of history. The, the Greeks, the Romans, you can apply it to various wars in uh, Europe. You can apply it to the United States today, even though we do not fit the specifics of the future prophecy. When you look at our nation today, you see the same kinds of problems and God has the same judgment awaiting those nations that do not follow him. Ancient Greece fell. Rome fell. Other nations have fallen. If Jesus tarries... I frankly don't find the United States anywhere in the future of biblical prophecy. We may be one of those nations that are surviving during the tribulation period. But if Jesus tarries, we may be one of those nations like Rome that has passed from the scene of history as others have come to take predominance. Uh, we're looking at situations right now that can totally change uh, the face of history and make a huge difference on the world scene. You have to ask yourself, uh, you know, sometimes what's going to happen if China continues to uh, become more and more powerful What's going to happen if North Korea actually pulls off their goal? Uh, how is that going to affect us? Uh, you read things in the newspaper that talk about uh, the kinds of weaponry that would ultimately, over time, not that every city in the country would be blasted by nuclear missiles, but that things would happen in the power grid that would ultimately change the face of America and eliminate the vast majority of the population. And, and as you look at those things, you realize we, like Judah, are facing the same kinds of potential judgment because, like Judah, we are facing the same kinds of apostasy. We have built ourselves up. We have 
amassed our gold. We have built our military. We have done all of these things that are characteristic of Judah during this period of time. And God says, in due season, the common man will be humbled and the man of importance will be abased. But do not forgive them. Enter the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. The proud look of man will be abased. And the loftiness of man will be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty. And everyone who is lifted up that he may be abased. God is opposed to the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. And Judah is in a position where she has neglected the worship of God and looked at herself and her own abilities and her own strength and her own pride in order to uh, look at herself and say, I've done amazing things. I have become very powerful. Uh, I don't have to worry about uh, any kind of judgment or any kind of opposition. I am Judah. I'm going to be number one. Not only the nation, but the individuals. When has there ever been a time in our country when the pride of man has reached the level that it has today. When we look at ourselves and we consider ourselves to be on top of the world, and yet look at what's happening. All of a sudden, the high and mighty are beginning to fall. Isn't it amazing what has happened, uh, not only throughout Hollywood, but throughout major business? as one man after another has been exposed, starting with one woman speaking out, and it's like an avalanche. And all of a sudden, the mighty are being brought low, and they're being uh, publicly exposed and humiliated. And the questions are being asked, If it's good for the heads of business and it's good for Hollywood, why isn't it good for Washington? Let's begin to deal with that problem and let's start at the source. I don't know if you recall, I'm sure you do, the the video of um, President Trump stepping off the bus and speaking to the man he was traveling with. Uh, bragging about uh, his freedom with women. The day is coming. He's next on the list. I I can't imagine that he's going to escape uh, all of this kind of thing. But it's not new with Trump. We've already been through the Clinton era, not the Hillary era, but the Bill era. (laughs) We've been through other times. It goes all the way back to the Kennedys. 
And as time goes along, it just gets worse and worse and worse. God says the proud will be brought down. And we have been riding the crest of a wave as if we were number one on the planet. And I believe that judgment is beginning. And God is bringing the proud down and humbling them. And that leads me to chapter 3, the foolishness of leadership. This is uh, an amazing chapter. In Isaiah 3, verse 1, For behold, the Lord God of hosts is going to remove from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, the whole supply of bread and the whole supply of water, the mighty man and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of fifty and the honorable man, the counselor and the expert, and the skillful enchanter. What's he saying here? God is saying, I'm going to deal with the nation of Judah in such a way that I'm going to take away her truly good leaders. She doesn't deserve them. I'm going to take away the honorable men. I'm going to take away the the real leaders and the real captains. Have you seen anything in the news? Have you been following the scandal that's been going on throughout the Pacific Fleet with the leadership of the officers of the Navy that have been taking their ships into port in order to purchase fuel and supplies from a man who has been bribing them with expensive vacations, with prostitutes, and with extra money, that the officers of the United States Navy, and they they think there's now thousands in this category, have become susceptible to bribery to purchase their goods from a person who is abusing the government and basically stealing us blind by bribing the officers to utilize his goods. And the fact that we're living in a time when hundreds or more officers of the military are willing to be bribed for the sake of illicit gain for themselves. I read a lengthy article that explained that the general morale of the Pacific Fleet, and you know the accidents that have occurred, two collisions in recent months, that the morale of the Pacific Fleet is is just going down the tubes. The enlisted sailors are discouraged and frustrated. Uh, some of them are being abused by their captains. They're being worked beyond their ability to uh, 
get refreshment and, and the necessary sleep. Why are we in such trouble? Because the leadership is failing. And as a consequence, there's a general loss of pride and, and morale and strength. Not that it's true of every person by any means, but enough that it's making a tremendous impact within the Pacific Fleet, our 7th Fleet, which is in a hotbed of the world. I mean, if ever there were a place that we needed to have a show of strength as, as a nation, it's in that region of the Pacific the mighty man and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, God is going to bring them down. The captain of 50 and the honorable man, the counselor and the expert artisan, God is going to bring them down. They're going to be removed. And what are they going to be replaced with? I will make mere lads their princes and capricious children will rule over them. Did you ever see anything that kind of reminded you of that? And I'm not being partisan this morning in my comments, but uh, I, I find that our leadership and our top leadership in Washington, it, uh, they're acting like children. They're behaving like toddlers. It's disgusting. But it's not because one particular party won the election. It would have been the case with any party. We're in a time of political disaster in this country. Uh, people around the world have said, never have we seen the United States in the horns of such a political dilemma as in the last election. We're in trouble. And God says, I will make mere lads, children, <laughs> will rule over them, and the people will be oppressed, each one by another, and each one by his neighbor. The youth will storm against the elder, and the inferior against the honorable. Our problem has not been so much with terrorists from other countries. Our problem has been with terrorists from our own country. Our problem is with crime in the streets. Our problem is with murder and, and, and drugs and all of those things happening against our neighbors, one against the other. As God begins to withdraw His grace and His Spirit from a people, more and more their natural evil begins to rise to the surface until we come to a place where lawlessness abounds, Paul says. And people pursue their own interest at whatever cost. Uh, I drove last evening to O'Hare to collect Rowena from her flight and 
bring her home. I'm very glad she's back. <laughs> and uh, we were coming back and decided to stop in the Woodfield area and get a bite to eat. And we were just talking about the traffic. People do behind the wheel what they would never do if you could see them. You know, if, if they were out in the neighborhood, they'd be your nice neighbors. And they get behind the wheel of their car, and they're rude, and demanding, and selfish. And you really have to pay attention to what's going on, because it's crazy. People ignore stop signs. They push four cars through a yellow light that's long since turned red. Um, they have total disregard for people in parking lots and whatever. And you, and you just look, you say, what's going on? Why are people so self-centered and demanding me first? Because more and more lawlessness abounds. And then in the midst of this, God reminds Israel in chapter 4, beginning in verse 4, The Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst. By the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, even smoke and the brightness of a flaming fire by night, for over all the glory will be a canopy. And there will be a shelter to give shade from the heat of the day and refuge and protection from the storm and the rain. What is he talking about? Does it sound familiar? Going all the way back to the wilderness wanderings, what was happening with the Shekinah glory of God. You know what Shekinah stands for? It's His manifest presence. You know the difference. God is here this morning. He is in our midst. He promises that whenever we gather, He will be among us. He promises us individually, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But are you always aware of His personal presence? Do you always feel His presence in your midst? Not always. We, we go through our daily lives and a good bit of the time we're thinking about the things we have to do and all of those sorts of things, and they occupy our minds. But when God's Shekinah presence appears, there's nothing else we can think of. There's nothing else that captures our attention. He is exalted and glorified above all things. And in the wilderness, the pillar of fire at night and the pillar of cloud by day that moved with them and led them and guided them was a visible testimony of the glory and the power and the holiness of God. 
And in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, when uh, tongues of fire landed on uh, every person as a manifest presence of the Spirit of God coming upon them to purify and empower and prepare them for their mission as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. You will be my witnesses. It was the glorious power of God, a rushing mighty wind. I dare say that uh, they had never experienced anything like that before. And the people of Jerusalem gathered around to see what's happening in this place. That this rushing mighty wind is coming through. Can you imagine this morning if while I am speaking there were to be a a powerful source of wind that uh, was like a hurricane in in its uh, force and yet it didn't tear down the building? But it came rushing in and might and power and fire that was not consuming landed on the heads of each one of us and the presence of God was... Wouldn't you say that would be different than your normal experience? I think it would be. And so in verse or in chapter 4... It is this glory of God that is coming to Israel. In other words, God says, I've got some problems with you. You're going to suffer my judgment. I'm not going to let you get away with this. But I'm going to keep my word. And the day will come when my Shekinah glory visits Jerusalem again. And my presence becomes known That day is in the future. It's in the return of Jesus Christ. It's out there. God is reminding His people. I'm angry with your apostasy. I'm angry with your idolatry. I'm angry with your pride. But I love you. And I have not forgotten you. And there will come a day when I will manifest... My Shekinah glory among you. And then Isaiah sees this vision and tells this story. Chapter 5, verse 1. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around. He removed its stones. He planted it with choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it, and he also hewed out a wine vat in it. And he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I'm going to remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I'm going to break down its wall and it will be trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed. But briars and thorns will come up and I will charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. 
For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Have you ever heard that parable before? How about Matthew chapter 21, or Mark chapter 12, or Luke chapter 20, where Jesus tells this very parable? Except in this parable, the owner of the vineyard sends one after another to call the vineyard keepers back to him. These represent the prophets that God sent one after another to restore Israel to her God, to bring her back. And then Jesus says, finally, when they have ignored all the prophets, the owner of the vineyard says, I know what I'll do. I'll send my son. I'll send my only son. Surely they will respect him. Surely they will listen to him. And so he goes to the keepers of the vineyard. And he proclaims the love of the vineyard owner, the father. And not only do they throw him out, but they kill him. And they go their own way. And Jesus says, what will my father then do? What will the vineyard keeper do? God sent his son, his only son, to the vineyard, to the people of Israel, and to us. And he came to bring a message That for those who repent and turn from all of these other ways, he would restore his glory. He would bring them to salvation. He would give them new life. They would drink the wine of the vineyard, the blood of the lamb, that would cleanse them from sin. That was his promise. And, of course, we know how the story went in that time. They killed the son of the vineyard uh, owner. They put him to death. As Mark reminded us, not just they, but we also put him to death. We were part of that crowd crying, crucify him. And yet, to as many as would come back in repentance, he has offered life, refreshment, blessing, and glory. Friends, we're in trouble right now. In this country, we're in trouble. We started out with noble ideas. We've gone a long way since then. If Jesus tarries, I have no doubt but that we will face judgment as a nation. But the good news is that to as many as received him, 
To, the, to them he gave the authority to be the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. It doesn't matter what the United States does. It doesn't matter what the Middle East does. It doesn't matter what China, North Korea, Africa, South America. It doesn't matter. What matters is that you and I commit ourselves to follow the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. One day, this world will come under judgment. It's only a matter of time. One day it will happen. But we will be on the side of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And we will come in triumph with Him to reign with Him for a thousand years. Isaiah has a lot to say about all the details of how this will unfold. And we'll be studying that into the first few months of the new year. I hope you'll read. start reading now. We're going to have a reading schedule for you beginning in January. And we can follow Isaiah's prophecy. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you sent your only Son, to bring the message of salvation and love and redemption. We pray, Lord, that we would not be caught up in the world's ways, that we would bring the message of hope and redemption to all who will listen. And that as we read the daily news, we would not be surprised or shocked that worldly people live in worldly ways. Just give us grace, Lord, that we will not be part of it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.